Um, I was just so struck by what Christine brought in terms of an explanation of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished for us. And then that was so powerfully reiterated by Maggie as we shared communion together. And so I'm just wanting us, before we get going in Colossians, just to take a moment to think about the reality of our response to Jesus. And I don't know everyone in the room. I look around and I think, gosh, there are quite a number of faces that I don't know. So I don't know where everyone stands when it comes to knowing for sure where you're at with your faith, on your journey of faith. And so I want us just to take a moment now, because actually we can respond to God today. And so you may be in a position where you've never committed your life to God. You may be in a position where you are not sure that you have a relationship with God. You may be in a position where you're not sure that you've been forgiven for the things that you've done. And you may be in a position where you're thinking, well, actually, when I die, I'm not really sure where I'm going to go. I'm not sure I'm going to go to heaven. And if you're in that category today, can I say there is some incredibly good news for you? Because Jesus has died in order to take the punishment, pay the penalty for all the stuff that we've done wrong. And so if we come to him and we decide that we'll put our faith in what he has done, then we begin a relationship with God, which starts now, but lasts for eternity. And that is fantastic news. And what we need to do is just bring ourselves to God and say thank you and say sorry and say please come. So we're going to do that right now. Let's close our eyes. Just going to spend a moment. Let's just keep our eyes closed. Just going to encourage people in the room right now, maybe for the very first time or maybe as a recommitment I want you to say thank you to Jesus that he has died on the cross and paid the price for your sins. Let's just, in your own words, in the quietness of your own heart, let's just say those things to him right now. Let's continue to keep our eyes closed. So we've said thank you. We're now going to say sorry. I encourage you just to say sorry to God for the things you know you've got wrong, you've done wrong, you've said that are wrong, wrong thoughts that you've had. And as you say sorry, there can be a sense of turning away from those things, deciding to, to walk a different way, deciding to to follow a different attitude and mindset. So let's, again, just in a moment of quiet, in the quietness of our own minds, let's just also, we've said thank you, we're now going to say sorry.
Let's keep our eyes closed. We've said thank you. We've said sorry. We're now going to say please. This is the big one. This is asking God to, as it were, come and be at the very center of our lives, to come and take control of our lives. And so again, in the quietness of our, our own hearts and our own minds, let's just say, we want you to come. I want you to come, Jesus, and be, as it were, on the throne of my heart. Be right at the very center to guide my life, take control of my life. Let's pray again in the quietness of this moment, that sort of prayer right now. We've said thank you. We've said sorry. This is the time to say please. Please come. Let's do that right now. Please keep your eyes closed just for a moment or two longer. I would like to ask you if you have prayed that prayer either for the very first time or you've prayed that prayer as a recommitment to God. Where you are, I'd just like you to raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. There are many people raising their hands right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, do put your hands down. Let's open our eyes. I just want to be encouraging us all this morning. I could see eight or ten hands go up. So let's be encouraged that God is powerfully at work. Let's be thrilled that those people have just moved from a place of uncertainty to certainty in terms of their relationship with Jesus. Wonderful. Okay. Oh yeah, Colossians. Okay. So, over and over again in this letter, we've heard about the fact that Jesus is central to the life of Christians and other distractions need to be put to one side in order that we can be effective as Christians. And Helen mentioned last week, we live in the context of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Maggie mentioned this beautifully during communion. We understand that we have a new life. The old life has gone. It was put to death. We are risen to a new life. If we understand that, we also understand that we are no longer citizens of this world. We have, in effect, been ascended with Christ because we are now citizens of heaven, and this will be fulfilled completely and absolutely when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes again. And so if we can get to grip with these things, as Helen said last week, it will affect how we live. Our lives will be transformed because our understanding of the truth of the centrality of Jesus will overflow out of us and will affect all aspects of our life. And it will affect our family lives and it will affect our working lives. And those are the two very things that Paul goes on to speak about next. And in this next section, he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, and workers and employees, and employers. And so let's look at these one by one. First, Colossians three eighteen and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives 
and do not be harsh with them. Well, there you are. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's quite a brief summary of marriage. Um, I've been married for, I don't know, five years, ten years, you know, 20, 30 years, and is this all I get? You know, a line each? Well, no. Uh, you may remember that we've talked about Paul's connection with the church in Ephesus, and actually the relationship between that church and the church in Colossae through a man called Epaphras. And that's been made reference to a number of times during this series. And it's useful to expand on what Paul says here by having a look at what he writes to the Ephesians. So we're going to look also at Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands... Um, for the hus- as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And so the summary that we see in the letter that we're studying over this series in Colossians uh, is expanded upon in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. So in order that we can help understand the heart of what is behind what Paul's saying to the church at Colossae, we actually need to look at this passage alongside that one. That isn't cheating, honest. It would be cheating not to do that. So with this in mind, let's focus on a couple of key things for married people. If you're not married and you're in the room, by the way, don't doze off. Because actually there are some general principles that are really important for you, even though obviously this first section, the emphasis is about marriage. So the first thing I want us to spend some time looking at is as follows. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, expanded on by Paul in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So we live in a world where male chauvinism and girl power are prominent, and these are phrases that are used. And then we find that the Bible talks about headship and submission in marriage, and there's a lot of confusion, and there's a lot of emotion tied up when we hear verses like, husbands are the head of their wives, and wives submit to your husbands. What do we make of this? Is this an outdated view of marriage? Well, for us to understand this, what we need to start with is our understanding of God's view of the human race. Men and women were created by God. They were created in His image. Therefore, men and women have equal value and equal dignity before God and deserve to be treated with equal value and equal dignity. Now, we've got a moment right now. What I'd like us to do uh, is a little task for you. I'd like you just to have a little look around. I'd just like you to look at one another. Could you manage to do that? It's not too painful, is it? Just have a look at different people. Turn around. Just start to have a little look. As you are doing this, 
As we do that, see, it's a little bit better than having to look at me all the time. As you do that, feel free to keep going. As you do that, you are looking at a creature more like God than anything else in the universe. Because everyone in the room has been created in the image of God. And so the biblical view of men and women is that they are equal in value and dignity and equally important before God. No one has the right to feel superior about their gender, and no one should feel inferior about their gender. With that equality in our minds, we then need to see that the biblical position is that within marriage, the husband and wife have different roles. And it is in that context that we need to look at this statement about wives submitting to their husbands. What does this mean? If a wife is to submit to her husband, what is that about? Well, the first thing to say is it's not about being a passive doormat. This is about joyful, intelligent submission. This is about a wife actually asking her husband to take seriously his responsibility to look after her and to lead her and to protect her. A wife is to submit to her husband as the church is to submit to Christ. Wait a minute. Whoa. Let's just get to grips with this. Let's just pause there for a moment. The church submits to Christ, to Jesus, the perfect man who lived a perfect life, God in human form, the one who sacrificed his life for his bride. So when we talk about submission and when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, this places a significant responsibility on the husbands and it instructs the wives, actually, you submit to godly leadership. It's not saying wives submit to any old leadership. It's submitting, it's, it's encouraging and instructing wives to submit to the sort of leadership modeled by Jesus Christ himself. And this is really important because suddenly the emphasis turns upon the man. Colossians 3:19 Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again expanded in Ephesians 5:25 to 27 Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the wa- by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We find at times the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So the head of the church is Christ, who is also the bridegroom of the church. And as we think of this, remember that the husband as the bridegroom is to express his leadership in his marriage by loving his wife as Christ, the bridegroom of the church, loved his bride, the church. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. So let's just spend a moment looking at Jesus' love for the church. He does not crush the church. Instead, he sacrifices himself for the sake of the church, to serve her in order that she might be everything he longs for her to be. 
The wonderful church in the fullness of her glory is his aspiration for the church. And so the husband should never use his leadership to crush or stifle his wife or to frustrate her from being herself. His love for her will lead him in exactly the opposite direction. He will be prepared to give himself for her so that she can develop her full potential under God and become more completely herself. So as we think about this, we realize that this is sacrificial love. The wife's submission to the husband is to be given within the context of love. She is to submit to a lover, not an ogre. The biblical instruction is not. I don't know who that guy is, ladies, by the way. But I thought you'd probably find him quite aesthetically pleasing, although he's an older guy. So that's why I chose him. Don't know what you make of that, but there we are. The biblical instruction is not wives submit husband's boss. It's wives submit husband's love. It's interesting to note that the passage in Ephesians has twice as much to say to husbands about loving their wives as it does to wives about submitting to their husbands. Okay, so finally in this section, how might this look uh, in a decision-making process? So let's just think about that. Let me give you a practical example of how Helen and I might approach this together. Let's create a scenario, shall we? I want you to imagine for a moment that I believe that we're called as a family to an unreached people group in the Amazon rainforest. I feel entirely convinced that God has said that that's what we should do. Everyone's looking rather pleased. It's not true. Don't worry. (laughs) It's only a scenario. Calm down. Dave's rubbing his hands thinking, oh, at last. Um, (laughs) I tell Helen this bit of news, and she is, shall we say, far from convinced. So what should I do? What is my response? I believe my response is to take my spiritual leadership seriously. What does that mean? Does it mean I pack up and we all go? No. What it means, I believe, is that I need to pray again. I need to pray that I have heard correctly from God and that he will clarify that and that he will confirm that. But also, I'm going to be praying that not only will God speak to me, he will speak to my wife as well. He will speak to Helen as well. I recognize that he is just as able to speak to Helen on a matter as big as this as he is to speak to me. And so I pray that he will do so. I pray for her too, that she will be receptive to hear and receptive to receive what God might say. Now, if there's no further confirmation at all, we wouldn't go. We wouldn't go. Because my leadership in this area is not about dictating the terms. It's about prayerfully testing the call of God on our lives. And with something as significant as this, 
I decide I need sufficient confirmation and that Helen must also have sufficient confirmation and doesn't just follow on in my wake. And if, in spite of these checks and balances, I make a decision, and actually that decision is lacking in faith and discernment, I'm accountable, primarily accountable, before God for that decision. But my comfort is God's grace to me and God's mercy to me. But my motivation in this is to follow God and to bless my family. And if my motivation is to do both of those things, to follow God and to bless my family, I do not believe that the one ever compromises the other. So therefore, I can have confidence in God's ability to speak to us as a family rather than just taking off and the rest of my family having to follow in my way. Now, there's a big assumption here. This is one of the ways in which I would see my spiritual leadership in the context of um, following God and in the context of huge decisions. I mean, it's a massive decision in life, isn't it? I've taken a big one. But... A big assumption here is that Helen also wants to follow God and also wants to see our family blessed. And so Helen's role is not a passive one, it's a very active one. Submitting to her husband is not simply about waiting to see what decision he's going to make, it's about praying and seeking God for his best for our family and having the confidence that. He has the ability to speak and then having an openness to hear him speak. So it's not about just going along with the latest whim. Loving, godly leadership and joyful, intelligent submission can work powerfully together. I realize this cuts across so many cultural norms in our society, but when understood and applied biblically, I believe it makes for a powerful partnership and for mutual fulfillment and security within the family. I hope that makes sense. Part two. Colossians 3, 20 to 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Let's look at the first line about the obedience of children. Can't believe my two boys are serving in children's groups today when they should be hearing this. <laughs> ah, boys, I hope you're listening on, online. Sometimes we have to work really hard to demonstrate our authority as parents. I think what Helen and I have found in our limited experience is that if we are secure in our authority and at the same time surround our kids with unconditional love, there will be security. It's a strange combination, those two things. But I think it works very, very powerfully. I believe kids respond very well to authority and love in equal measure. And actually, this combination, I believe, is a scriptural one because it's demonstrated by the perfect model father himself. So when it comes to children obeying their parents, I think it's really good for parents to decide what they expect from their children. 
Because if we expect perfection, we're going to be sorely disappointed. And our children are going to be damaged as we try to approach things in a legalistic way. On the other hand, if we expect them to obey nothing that we say, we're going to be demotivated in the setting of our boundaries, and we give children license to do whatever they like, which is never going to end well. Another factor is, of course, where uh, there are two parents involved. Mum and dad provide a united front. When I was a child, I found the unity between my two parents unbreakable. I could never get one on side against the other. And I tried often. I was a right pain in the neck. And my parents were, were far from perfect, but this was one area where I just could not defeat them. It was so annoying. But what I found, and what we've found, Helen and I, is that we frequently have to talk about the issues of boundaries. And uh, we need to check whether, you know, have we moved away from our plan? We had this great plan in our parenting. We had this great plan. Have, have we sort of let it just drift a little? We need to check whether we've moved away from it. Or perhaps one of us has lost the plot. Usually me, to be honest. Or whether... Actually, our child is now in a different phase. And that's really important as well. Because the same principles can apply, but the outworking is very different. So, a couple of examples. For young children, you can say to them, well, you can splash in the puddle, but you put your wellies on first. If I said that to my teenage boys, they, I don't know what they would say to me, but... On the other hand, I feel I can say to my kids, well, you can go out with your friends, but you do take your mobile and you don't split up and you come back by X amount of time. So the same, it's the same principles, but obviously the outworking changes as circumstances and life stage change. But the vital factor is, of course, we agree on the setting of boundaries. And this is a big deal because if one of the parents is setting all the boundaries and dictating all the terms, that's not a very healthy situation. That's dishonoring the other parent and their right to be involved in the process. And of course, no one has all the right answers, do they? But the conclusion should result in unity. There needs to be an agreement as to how we will do things. These are the boundaries. These are the consequences. And although this verse is addressed to children obeying their parents, I really do believe it's important that parents need to empower their children to do this. We need to empower our children to know how to obey by providing stability and clarity and authority undergirded by this demonstration of our unconditional love for them. Again, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians, but it doesn't say a great deal more than what we find here. The only extra thing I'd like to mention is Ephesians 6 verse 2, which says, honor your parents. I think that as children, we obey our parents. As adults, this is really important for some people, we don't obey, we do honor our parents. I believe that's an important distinction. As we move out of the parental home, and we begin our families of our own, we then move to a place of honoring our parents rather than obeying everything that they say. 
Okay, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I'm not going to really spend much time on this because we have, we've got so much we're trying to cover today. Uh, but just to say that here's a useful checklist when it comes to causing our children to be discouraged. Just some questions for us to think about. Sorry, that's not very big. But questions like these. You know, what do the rules look like? When it comes to children being embittered or discouraged, are they balanced? Are they petty? Are they wishy-washy? Are they too strict or not strict enough? Which battles do you pick? All of the battles? Some of the battles? No battles? Helen's often said to me, why have you decided to pick that particular battle with your children? And suddenly... I'm thinking about it, and I'm really arguing against one of the boys on something which really, honestly, doesn't really matter. And suddenly the oldest person in the house is acting the least mature, and it's a bit of a blow. So what battles do we pick? When you're wrong, what do you do? Cover up? Deny it? Admit it? Say sorry. Of course, I always admit it and say sorry. Sometimes. It's tricky, isn't it? It's a huge challenge, but it teaches our kids stuff as well. Are you giving your child enough attention? Here's a famous one, isn't it? Do they get more attention for you being good or more attention for being disobedient? That's a famous big question for parents to deal with. Are we having fun? We don't want it to be all about the rules, do we? Having fun with our kids. And at different stages, there are different ways in which we have fun with our kids. Uh, I've stopped wrestling with my boys now because they can beat me. Um, and that's just not fair. So I now have to play games that I can still win. That's the general plan of my parenting. Um, are we praying with our kids? Are we actually teaching our kids to keep Jesus central? Or are we just relying on, you know, Jen and Ruth and Ali to do that for us? No, we need to be focused ourselves on that. Okay, let's look at the last bit today. Colossians 3 from verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, for not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven." Now, last year in June and July, we did a series on the workplace. So if this is something that is particularly for you, then have a look at our website and also bear in mind the um, business forum thing that's coming up soon, which is on your notice sheet, which Dave made reference to earlier. Uh, I'm just going to make a couple of comments here. Again, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians. First of all, a couple of statements about slavery, because of course it's talking about slaves and masters here. People reading this letter uh, have sometimes expressed uncertainty, embarrassment, or disappointment that Paul doesn't really seem to be 
doing much about slavery. He seems to, to be content with the status quo. It seems he's unwilling to call for social change when it comes to the issue of slavery. Paul, why aren't you making statements against slavery rather, in, rather than just instructing slaves? Uh, and in the first instance, it seems that rather than removing the yoke of slavery, Paul seems to be increasing its burden because he's saying to Christian slaves, you need to obey earthly masters in everything. So what is Paul saying on the issue of slavery? Well, the first thing to say is that this little section here in uh, the letter to Colossians is not the only statement that Paul makes relating to slavery. In fact, it's really important to read the letter that Paul writes to a man called Philemon, someone probably connected with the church in Colossae, and that gains a better perspective on how Paul views slaves and masters. That letter gives us an insight into the impact of the gospel on the relationship between slaves and masters and how that actually in turn will affect Roman society and begin to change it. But we haven't got time for that right now. But even in this passage, what we see is that Paul wants Christian slaves to understand that actually they are now not serving humans at all. It's clear from verse 23, Paul says they are not serving God, they are not serving men, but God. Everything they now do is for God. And once again, we see the theme comes back. Jesus is central. Once again. So in effect, they've been rescued from their slavery to their masters in order to become a full-time servant of Jesus. And so there is no way that the Bible condones slavery, and throughout the centuries, Christians have been at the very center of campaigns to see slavery abolished, and they still are even now. And so as we return from that brief tangent relating to the theology of slavery, let's just look at the application for us as employers, employees, workers. The first thing that this passage says, which seems really important in regard to the workplace, is the issue of working hard not only when our, bo- our boss is watching us. Look out, the boss is here. Look busy. The Bible argues against the idea that external appearances matter more than anything else. Working hard in front of the boss keeps in his good books. I believe that's a universal practice in our world today. More than that, it's become a fine art. The appearance of obedience and commitment is there, but the reality might look quite different. And the Bible is wholeheartedly opposed to that view. And so as we go about our work, we are set free from the idea that value and dignity come out of what our boss thinks of us. We have a different assurance about our worth, a different assurance about our dignity. We are In effect, we're touching on what Helen was discussing last week when she mentioned the importance of understanding our key identity is in Christ. And that means whatever job we do, whether it seems to be very significant or quite menial, the reality is, as rescued children of God, we are fit to serve the Lord of glory. We can do our jobs knowing that we are working for Him and He is delighted to receive our service. And that truth can and should have an impact upon how Christians think of their workplace or their studies or whatever situation in life you might currently be in. 
With this in mind, verse 24 goes on to say that a reward beyond our wages or promotion or esteem that we might receive doing our job is available for us, which is a great relief to the first century slave because there was no wages, no esteem, and very little honor. However, for the 21st century executive, the challenge to gain is honor and esteem and lots of cash from our jobs can be significantly tempting. But we need to have in mind that the greatest reward is the inheritance in heaven. And we will be rewarded in heaven as we approach our lives in a godly way. And finally, a quick word to bosses out there. In the context of the culture of the time, this was probably the most shocking thing that Paul said on this subject. A slave at that time would have no ability to seek justice of any kind in any way, and no one would seek justice on their behalf. And yet Paul speaks to Christian masters, and he instructs them to be fair and to be just with their slaves. The idea of treating slaves fairly may have resulted in masters being ostracized socially. It may have had financial implications. It was so countercultural. And in the same way, bosses acting with integrity, fairness, and justice can still be challenged today in a ruthless and cutthroat culture of work. Okay. So, I've tried to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. It hasn't been quite as short as I'd like, but I hope you've coped. Each of the subjects deserve not just a talk, but a series in their own right. And I've tried to cover three, three subjects. That's why we devoted a whole series last year to the workplace and why Helen and I run and continue to run courses on marriage and parenting. Not because we're the experts, by the way. In fact, every time we've done it, we've learned lots and lots of things from other people who've been on the courses. We don't do it because we're the specialists. We do it because we realize how important it is. And as with each of the talks in this series, the importance of Jesus being at the center of family life, the center of working life, at the center of all of our lives, is made clear in this section as well. And so with this in mind, I wonder whether we can conclude. Could we just stand together for a moment? And I just want to pray. And then I'll hand back to Dave. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters standing in this room. And I want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us to have the courage to put you at the center of all that we are and all that we do in every circumstance, whether that be in family, in neighborhoods, in our work, in our relationships, whatever it might be, we're asking for you, Jesus, to be at the center. Because we know that is the key to our lives. Help us, we pray, by your grace and in your name. Amen.
Thank you. Do take your